uh, the joy of closing a sermon series. I, I get excited every time we start a new sermon series. It's like this fresh beginning, and then when we finish one, I, I get to look back and go, hey, that actually did what we thought it was going to do. And this series that we're in right now, that we're closing today, is called We Are Covenant. And the idea behind the series was last year we sent uh, basically a survey out, a one-question survey about what is it that makes covenant covenant? What is it that we are known for? What is it when you think of this body of believers uh, rises up as one of the key values that we hold? And, and so while this is a, a covenant-centric thing, it's actually relatable to all believers across um, the entire kingdom of God. Um, all of these things are crucial, essential things, but these were the five ideas that came back, that we are welcoming, kind of radically welcoming outsiders, becoming insiders. We are missional. We care. The mission on the wall is not something nice that we put up there to make people think we care, but we actually do that thing, that we are authentic, that we are vulnerable, uh, that we walk with our limp for all to see, and that in doing so, we show that our imperfection of, of us um, is okay because the perfection of Christ is where our true identity lies, uh, that we're generous that in radical ways, that we are going to impact the city through generosity of all sorts, time and emotion and resources and everything. Today we finish with this idea that we are servant-minded, servant-minded. And these are the hallmarks of life here. I actually believe that this one sort of serves as the foundation for all the others. That if we are servant-minded, then we have the true spirit of welcoming, the true spirit of, of missional living, the true spirit of authenticity or generosity, that only with the right Christ-like heart and mind do we get there. And this is all rooted, ultimately, in humility. And so to have a servant-minded life is to have a, a life rooted in a deep gospel humility. We'll talk more about what that means. We're going to start today in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi, so we'll pick that up in chapter 2. It's up here on the screen for you. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, or you know a friend that could use one, there is a whole bookshelf out there in the foyer with blue books on it. Those are Bibles, and those are free for you. So if you ever need one of those, take one or take ten. We will replace them, and we would love for you to have that. So up here on the screen, we are reading in Philippians 2. Scripture says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God— did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." What a beautiful piece of writing just to begin with. He starts in this section by saying, if you have any encouragement from being in Christ, any comfort in his love, do nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourself. If you, you zoom in on that to verse 3, it sort of says, if you want true joy and you want unity, if you want true joy and unity as we follow Jesus, then don't do anything out of vain conceit. It's sort of a formula. If you want X, don't do Y. If you want joy and unity, then don't live that way. If you want to live that way, then don't expect joy and unity. It's sort of this formula. We can apply it to our modern life. How many of you have trouble ever, uh, ever have trouble falling asleep? 
Anybody ever have trouble? Yeah. Sleep is, sleep is hard. If you look around the medication, the aisles of the grocery store that have medication, there are more and more sleep medications than ever before. There's now a NyQuil that's just called Z-Quil. And it's just a bunch, it's a big jar of purple pills just to help you sleep. No medicine except for the thing that, the antihistamine that helps you kind of just zone out. I was reading this book called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. And he was talking about how uh, modern sleep issues really are relatively new in, in human history that the Industrial Revolution and electrification of the world created this whole uh, change in the way our bodies deal with day and night, with sleep and wakefulness. It used to be when the lights went out, um, as in the sun went down, you slept. What else can you do in the dark? And then electrification brings this whole other revolution of we can now turn the lights on and we can keep going and keep working and keep consuming and we just keep going. Even in, in kind of a more hyper-modern way, the abundance of LED screens in our lives have, have made this problem worse. LED screens are basically what runs your television and your smartphone and anything else that works in that kind of screen or device world. These are LED screens. They emit this blue LED light into your brain. And, and basically what it does is signal your brain that it's not night yet. It's still day. And so at midnight, if you sit there staring at your phone, what you're telling your brain is, hey, I know you think it's nighttime, but it's not nighttime. It's daytime. Look at all this beautiful light coming into our brains. And we then wonder, why can't I fall asleep? 90% of adults say they look um, at one of these LED-emitting devices in the hour going up to bed. 90% of adults say, yeah, I totally am staring at one of those things. Television, phone, whatever. I don't know what the other 10% are doing, to be honest. Reading in the dark. In one study, uh, these LED screens that people look at, they, they basically gave uh, one group, this control group, they didn't do anything for them, and they tested all their, their levels and melatonin and all that, and then the other group, they gave them access to LED screens, and then they tested what happened with them. And that group, the, the, the group that had access to this LED light in the hour before sleep, they found they had 50% less melatonin release than the others. And so we're at the store, then next to the z pills, we're buying the melatonin pills and hoping we can take some of that too, because if I just get a little melatonin, and what it's saying is, if you're looking at a screen before sleep, you're basically inhibiting your ability to even release that. And then we wonder, why don't we sleep? And we don't sleep because our brains don't think it's night. So, so what Matthew Walker would say as he goes through this book, he says, if you want great sleep, don't stare at a screen. If you want joy and unity... Don't live for vain conceit. It's if you want X, don't do Y. If you want great sleep, then it's going to be a book, and it's going to be 8.30, and it's going to be dark out, and you're going to feel like you're kind of a loser, but you're going to go to bed, and you're going to wake up feeling refreshed. If you don't want great sleep, then stay up and binge the next Netflix show and scroll through Facebook, and at 11.30, wonder why you don't feel tired yet, and then in the morning, you feel bleary-eyed, and it's sort of a pattern. If you want great sleep, don't stare at a screen. If you want joy and unity, Paul says, don't live for vain conceit. This idea of vain conceit is a Greek phrase. It's a Greek word. It's a compound word, kenodoxia. And it comes from two different words. The word uh, kenosis means to empty. So it's empty. And the word doxa we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about the doxology, which just means glory. Doxa is glory. And so what this phrase means is don't live for empty glory. Don't live for empty glory. The King James Version, if you have that version of your Bible, you can get it out and dust it, blow it off the dust, and, and you kind of look at the old King James, and someone's offended in here, and that's okay. But what it would say, it would say, vainglory. It would say, don't live for vainglory, which is a word no one on earth would ever use in a real sentence, except it used it, and it's the perfect word. Don't live for vainglory. Don't live for glory that terminates on yourself. 
Don't live in a way that looks to build up your own interests. If you want joy and you want unity in Jesus, if you want those things, don't live for self. So, so you, you follow the logic here. We're doing the math and we go, so if we want joy and unity, if we want joy of the Christ life and unity, who do we live for? How do we do this? And this is where it comes to gospel humility. So we have to avoid being prideful. If we're going to be humble, we have to avoid being prideful. And pride, as C.S. Lewis would tell us, is the basic sin behind all particular sins. Pride is the basic sin behind all particular sins. That every sin you can think of is ultimately rooted in a pride that holds self and the glory of self as chief aim. More, don't allow sneaky pride to convince you to live your life chasing your own glory. It's that sneaky pride that says, well, just a little more for you. Paul says it is vanity. It's empty. It'll undermine the very thing you were designed for. You were designed for joy and unity with Christ. And so living for self, living in pride for vain glory, is actually undermining the very thing you were designed for. Rather, Paul says, in humility, value others above yourselves. This is important. It doesn't just say value others above yourselves, because that's a thing you can do in a a number of different methods. It says, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not in obligation, because you can do that. Not in religiosity, because you're supposed to. Not in self-flagellating punishment. Not in uh, false humility and and uh, depraved, oh, I'm just so worthless, I'm just a sinner. Like, I knew a guy when I was doing college ministry, early in ministry, and he would always come in, and he was the... um, the most non-humble, humble person I ever met in my life. We called him out on this uh, occasionally. He would, I'm just so depraved. I just so, I mean, there's nothing I can do. I'm just so worthless and a wretch like me, and I'm so depraved. And we're like, you realize all your sentence subjects are still I. And so your, your like self-loathing thing is actually just an inverse form of pride. And so, so that isn't humility either. What was the old line? It isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Like, that's humility. We have to empty ourselves out of that, that false humility, too, that pride that just comes from different angles. We have to operate in a new way. When we operate in pride, we serve for self. We love others for our own gratification. We, we do things, ultimately, because we want the glory to terminate back on us. And here's the thing. Being servant-minded, what we're talking about today, isn't about serving the church. That's not what we're talking about. This is not going to be met with at the end of the the service, we're going to pass around a clipboard so you can sign in the kids' ministry and, and start working on Sundays. You're welcome to do that, but that's not what this is about. This is about adopting a heart posture and a mindset like Christ so that as we go through our very days, as we live out as the church of the 167 who spends one hour here a week and 167 hours out in the rest of the world living our lives, that we might have a mind and a heart like Christ as we go through it. I was talking to a friend this week who was struggling with the load he had taken on, and he was stressed with all of his busyness. And I said, well, tell me about the busyness. And he starts laying out all the things he's doing for others. And I said, look, I think you're an approval addict, and I think you're an approval junkie, and I think you're actually doing all that stuff for you. And he was like, what? That's not why I called you. You're supposed to tell me that you're really impressed how busy I am. And I was like, well, I'm not. It looks like vainglory to me that the world would keep on spinning even if you didn't do those things, but you're doing those things so that others might look at you and see righteousness in you, and so maybe you shouldn't be doing those things. What I ended up saying was that it isn't that pride doesn't serve, but that it's always ultimately self-serving. 
It isn't that pride doesn't serve, it's that it's always ultimately self-serving. And so we can trick people into thinking that we have a servant-mindedness, a heart like Christ, by, by doing things for others, but ultimately we know our motivations, we know the heart behind it, we know where we're hoping the glory might terminate. And when we're operating out of pride, it's on us. I learned this early in my marriage when my wife would leave for the day, it's a Saturday and she's going to go be gone, and so I would do that uh, super husband thing where I'd clean the house. She's going to come home, and the house will be clean, and I will be a hero. And so I would spend my day cleaning, and she'd get home, and she'd be on the phone and be doing something else and be distracted, and I'd be over there, you know, with like those, those like airplane lights when you're guiding the plane in, and I'd be pointing at the oven. The oven is clean. Have you seen? Look, do you want to look in the oven with me just in case? And she's like, I don't, I, what do you want me to see? And I'd just be crushed because I'd done all this work, but I didn't do it for her. I was desperate for credit. I just wanted her to see all the stuff I did. That was me looking for glory to terminate on me. That was pride, not selflessness. That wasn't humility. That was hoping for credit. This is why uh, mostly you men, will you love mowing your lawn? Because those lines communicate something to your neighbors, don't they? Those beautiful lines in your yard when you, you sit back and you stretch out and you... Nothing creates more of the prideful satisfaction than... A few hours after you mow, you hear a lawnmower start up and it's your neighbor. (laughs) Honey, I bet he saw my lines and now he has to mow to keep up. And there's something in that. Why do we like to mow? Because it gives us this really clear indication that we've done something. It's credit for the whole world to see. If you could look from a satellite, you would see lines on my yard. Look how great I am. We love to mow the yard. This is not simply an outdoor phenomenon. How many of you are obsessed with your vacuum lines on the inside? Admit it. I have been known to do incredible Mission Impossible jujitsu in a room. After going and vacuuming the room, I know a perfect way to do it. When I vacuum our bedroom and my wife is not there and I'm wanting the credit, I start in the back corner and I work my way back to the door so that nobody will ever walk on the lines If you have to go get something from the room, you can hug the wall and kind of create a little path, but the lines will still be there. So when she comes in, she goes, ooh, look at the vacuum lines. What would we do without the knowledge that the vacuum lines tell us it's clean in here? And yes, there's value in in the joy of having fresh, clean things. That is true. But there's some pride in the idea that you might notice those lines I left in the carpet. got to get that credit somehow. And it isn't that such serving isn't helpful. See, whether I vacuum for love or for prideful selfish credit, it still got done and the house is still clean and that's still a good thing. And so all of that is still true. It isn't that it isn't helpful to serve in that way versus another. It's just that that pride swelling up within us refutes the truth that God doesn't need my hands or my labor. Scripture is very clear that God doesn't need us. That God in and of himself is sufficient. And what he longs for is not our service so that we might make him better, but our service that would conform us to his image. But the reason God invites us into a serving posture with him is so that he might teach us and grow us and shape us into greater and greater Christ-likeness as we live. It's allowing us to be growing into more mature believers. Not because God needs our help in fixing the universe. Paul says how we do that matters. How we do what we do matters. So he says in verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ. 
This is where we get the idea of servant-minded. Have the same mindset of Christ, which is this true gospel humility. Tim Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he says, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. You know those people you sit with and you leave the conversation, you go, gosh, I did all the talking. They just kept asking questions. I just feel like, wow, hmm. Odds are you were talking to a truly gospel, humble person who was actually truly interested in you above themselves. Everyone's also left one of those conversations where you go, gosh, I don't think I even said a word and the hour's up. And you know that feeling too. Keller goes on, he says, the truly gospel, humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. To which you say, What in the world does that mean? When is the last time you thought about your pinky toe before right now? You can wiggle them in your shoes. Hopefully you're wearing shoes. You can wiggle that toe and go, I haven't thought about that toe in a while. When's the last time you thought about your pinky toe? Outside of the last time a week or two ago when you took those clippers and you tried to find that tiny little pinky toe nail and just clip it ever so slightly. Outside of that, when's the last time? That during your day, during your work day, you're making dinner, dropping the kids off at school. When's the last time you went, gosh, my toe is really doing a great job today? When your little toe is operating as intended, you go weeks without considering it. God has a great sense of humor knowing that this was something I was going to be preaching this week. I fell down the stairs on Monday wearing socks, um, which is the equivalent of wearing like, uh, you know, non-stick boots on ice. I'm wearing socks on carpet in the top stair coming downstairs from my girl's room. Um, I just, my foot just kept going. And then I started going, and then I started tumbling, and my, at some point, my left leg uh, just sort of slammed into the wall, and that hurt, and I heard cracking, and I started limping around, and a couple hours later, I got the bravery to then take off said sock and see what was left in there. And my little pinky toe that I never, ever consider looked like somebody had taken a tiny little eggplant and attached it to the end of my foot which is sort of weird. Limped around the office all day Monday. I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about it. No big thing. Tuesday, I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to fight through this. I could suffer my way through this. I'm going to get on the treadmill, put my shoes on, tighten them real tight, cramp that eggplant in real tight. And then I got on the treadmill, took about three steps, turned the treadmill off. I said, it's a yoga day. So that's what we did. The reality is this. Here's the point of the story. I was thinking about my toe all week. I'm thinking about it right now because if I took my shoe off and I showed you, you would go, that is as gross as I imagine. I don't think about my toe unless something is wrong with my toe. As believers, what if we were such that we were self-forgetful as the body put together, you a toe and me a finger and someone's the nose and someone's the eyes. And what if you don't think about stuff that works the way it's intended to work? You don't have to consider it. It just works. When healthy, we function selflessly in what Keller calls self-forgetfulness. We don't need special treatment or consideration. We are servant-minded. It just works. And this is the picture of gospel humility, is when gospel humility is at play in us, we're not considering what we're doing. We're doing what we're doing because we belong to Christ. But sneaky pride has the big toe claiming credit in one area and the pinky toe fighting for credit in the other. Do you see how much balance I provide? 
And Piggy Toe says, I'm so overlooked. And they go back and forth. And that's what it looks like when we're operating in pride is one is going, did you see how much I did? Do you see how much I serve? Do you see how much I love my neighbors this week? Did you see my vacuum lines in the carpet? Did you see? Pride is begging to be noticed. Humility is self-forgetful. Think of it this way. Gospel humility is to be so natural and normal in our lives that it's hard to articulate to others. Why do you do what you do? I actually don't know. How do you do what you do? I actually don't know. When you ask someone to teach something that comes naturally to them, it's a real struggle at first. Imagine this. There are runners in the room. How do you teach someone to run? If we were to go into the gym with all of our children, we'd say, okay, we're going to teach you to run. What we would say to start is like, um, maybe run. Go. Just a thing where you, and if you broke it down into its component pieces, you'd be like, well, there's, there's like core stabilization, and then you, there's a thing you're doing with your arms, I guess. So why did, no one runs like this. That would be weird. And are you bending your knees? Are you, how, how does this, like when you actually have to stop and think about it, something you do naturally takes a lot of thought. When you have to teach someone how in, in physical rehabilitation to do something they've always known to do, but they've lost through injury or accident or something, you have to reteach them how to do it. It's wildly complicated to teach a grown adult how to walk. Because you and I don't consider, what are our hips doing when we walk? And what about my knees? And where, is my, where are my shoulders? And how does this all work? And how do I balance? I just do. I walk in a sense of beautiful self-forgetfulness. When a runner goes out, they don't focus on heel strikes or optimal gaits or breathing rhythms or core stabilizations. They just run. Because you can't focus on all those things and run at the same time. Those things become the things we are concerned about. We become too self-concerned, and the thing we're aiming to do doesn't actually happen. Greatness happens when all those things happen without conscious effort, when we just do them. You ask the winner of a marathon, go to the New York City Marathon, the Boston Marathon, one of these great world marathons, and you ask the winner, how did you run today? Like, they're not going to talk about their heel strike. They, they've practiced those things. They've got those things. Those are innate abilities now. They're subconscious effort. All they think about is the goal at hand. You and I, as we serve in the body of Christ, you and I, as we love our neighbors, you and I, as we practice a mission of making Jesus known through all of our daily actions and even our words, if necessary, as we do that, it's not a conscious thought. At some point, it just is what we do, and we keep the goal in mind, and we know of all of the training and practice that has led up to it is going to come into play. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Greatness happens in the body of believers when each of us plays our role and considers others before self and practices true, gospel, humble, self-forgetful serving. In that sense, to be servant-minded equals to be Christ-like. Paul says, take on the mindset of Christ, who being God didn't use his divine nature to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing, it says, Jesus, being God, made himself a servant. So what are we looking at here? That Jesus has willingly taken a positional reality shift. He was positionally king of kings, creator of the universe, and he willingly subjugated himself as something less. And it's a positional reality that has been augmented, and as a result, he serves with a different heart. You and I have a certain station of life. We have a certain blessing of being part of God's family. And if we see each other as better than others, if we see ourselves as better than my neighbor or as as superior to someone else around us, we will never get around to serving them. Jesus, who being God himself, subjugated himself to becoming a servant. 
is the, the model for each and every one of us to, no matter where we see ourselves and how we see ourselves, to take ourselves out of that positional reality at the top of some sort of food chain that we've created and put ourselves at the bottom and go, this is what it looks like to live in an upside-down kingdom. I will serve. Jesus humbled himself, Scripture says, becoming obedient even to death. Humbled himself, becoming obedient. I would argue that anytime you find obedience, you will find humility. And when you find disobedience, you will find pride. You can look at it and find easy evidence in children. When you find obedience, you will find humility. I recognize that your way might be better than my way. I will do it your way. Where you find disobedience, you find pride. I don't like your way. I'd rather have ice cream for breakfast than whatever you've cooked for me. I will eat ice cream. That's pride. And that's true with all of our lives as we grow and we age. Every single moment that we find disobedience to God's word, it isn't because of anything less than simple pride. It's pride. I know your word says this about the way I should live my life, but I kind of want to do it that way. And the same is true for obedience. I know this is harder than the other way to do stuff, and the world says it's okay to do it this way, but I'm going to do it your way because ultimately what I trust is that your way is better than my way. That's called humility. We steal because we consider our desires more important than the owner's rights. We lie because we consider our reputation more important than truth. We cheat because we consider our needs more important than faithfulness to others. We gossip because we consider our power or our status more important than the discretion or dignity of others. All of those things are pride. My needs and desires are bigger and better than your needs and desires. So being servant-minded like Christ is the clear inverse of this. Consider others more important than self. Serve freely. Give of time and energy and gifts. And watch the way that it begins to carry out the mission of our everyday lives. Like I said, it isn't about this hour, but it's so clearly seen in the hour on Sunday morning when we're here. On a normal Sunday morning, you would come into church and you'd see Greg there with his guitar and you would see somebody standing here singing background vocals. Maybe playing keyboard too. You never know. And this is Liz or Steph or Susie. And they're standing here and they've given up their time, their energy. They've given up their morning to serve us. So we'll take Susie as our example. Susie considers leading worship and inviting you to the presence of God more important than her desire to sleep in on Sunday. She's made a conscious choice to give up something of her own for something for you. Then her husband... Phil has to then back that gift, and he then considers her gift and her ability and her willingness to do that more important than his desire not to be tasked with watching his three small children all by himself on Sunday morning. So then he considers someone other than himself first. Phil brings these children, well washed and cleaned up and all beautiful. They show up here on Sunday, and then they're greeted at the door by somebody, somebody who has kind eyes and a warm smile. They're greeted at the door by somebody who considered creating a warm and welcoming environment at a church more important than their other Sunday morning agenda that they could have. That person has decided that others coming into the church building and feeling warm and welcomed is more important than what they want with their life. Phil walks through those double doors and into the foyer and he's offered coffee by someone who's considered their ability to give caffeine and help shake the cobwebs of the general populace of Bowling Green. They consider that more important then whatever consumerist church experience they'd rather have, which doesn't include serving and does include taking. 
but they've said, you know what, I, I, I value them above me, and so I will serve. Phil then sits down after taking his kids. We shouldn't skip this part. This is the most important part for Phil on a Sunday morning. You go to Covenant Kids and you drop your kids off in multiple rooms, mind you, with various people who have all decided that their favorite thing to do on Sunday morning is to take on all of your children's insanity so that you might have one hour of peaceful time with God. That they would rather take on all of your insanity rather than have their own sane morning. What they've done is they've put themselves in a position to make your needs more important than their needs at that moment. He sits down in the church and he can hear everything clearly because someone sitting in the sound booth considered that their ability to help everyone hear the gospel clearly, to help the microphones work and the, the amplification happen and the slides go up at the right time, to make all of that stuff so the gospel is clearer, they've decided that they would rather give up their six hours of morning to make your life that much clearer with regards to what God is doing in your life. They would love to do that. That they're giving up their life for years. The gospel gets heard in church because dozens of people value others above self. And it's this cascade of one after another, after another, after another. All look around and go, others before self, others before self, others before self. And as a result, this beautiful thing happens. Because people value the glory of God more than the empty glory, the vain glory of self. Your neighbor gets invited to community group because you value their opportunity to meet Jesus more than your fear of rejection others before self. This is all rooted in the idea that Jesus ultimately valued your life above his. That the creator of the universe valued your life above his. And so as followers of Christ, we root ourselves not in our own attempts to be good and righteous, our own attempts to find some sort of manufactured humility. This is all rooted in the idea that Jesus, first and foremost, started this. That by giving his life for us, he said, my life for yours. I will put you above me. I will value your life above mine. And so I will die on a cross that you might live. Willingly became obedient to death on a cross so that you might know him. And so that God might ultimately be glorified. And so this is what is truly humbling. And you can't conjure up humility. You can't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think I'm going to be humble today. Humility comes from the knowledge that though we are insufficient, God is sufficient in all things through his sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Humility comes from an awareness that we in and of ourselves are insufficient, that we can't do it. And because we don't have a path to salvation on our own, and it's only through the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus, that's where our humility comes from, is when we realize that we are reliant on something greater. As a result, we live in a beautiful alternate reality that is the kingdom of God. And because of that, the gospel humbles us. And so being gospel humble is to be gospel rooted, is to remember that every single day our story starts and ends with the fact that Jesus loved us enough to give his life for us. This is why we serve. We follow Jesus and we will, like Christ, sacrifice our lives in whatever arena we find ourselves to see others know Jesus as well. We are covenant church. We are servant-minded. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is humbling to consider the totality of your service of us. God, it's hard to walk through the idea that while we were sinners that you loved us enough to send Jesus to give his life. 
it's humbling to consider in the days of Jesus, the last days of Jesus, that he knew the faith that awaited him, and yet he considered us more than he considered himself. Lord, our prayer as a community is that you would drive us closer to that reality in our own lives. You would find us emptying ourselves, walking away from the chase for vain glory, for empty glory that terminates on us, and instead chasing the glory that terminates on you, of learning what it means to serve, to consider others great, greater, and to not think less of ourselves, but simply to think of ourselves less, to consider what it looks like to look through life, not seeking credit, but seeking to magnify you. Lord, for every heart in here, there is a different application of that truth. Of the 167 hours that we will spend not in this room this week, Father, there is a different hour on each person's heart where they know there is an opportunity for greater gospel humility. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to live out the gospel through every moment. God, that we would serve the world around us, that we would do so with the mind of Christ, and in doing so, Father, that you would ultimately be glorified. God, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Father, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.